Hello, Laura. Hello, Glenn. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. I'm Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show here. GlennLowry.substack.com and at bloggingheads.tv. And I'm with Laura Bazelon. Do I say your name correctly? You did. Laura Bazelon, who's a law professor at the San Francisco University of San Francisco School of Law. And uh, I am welcoming her to the Glenn Show. So I'm very happy to be talking with you, Laura. I'm really honored to be here. And I've been thinking a lot about talking to you. We are having this conversation because of uh, Sam Harris, I think, because both you and I were invited to contribute a comment uh, by Barry Weiss at her Substack about systemic racism, which we did do. And in the Twitter or some other discussion about the thing, Sam says, you should have her on your show because you wrote, you know, yes, systemic. I'm not going to try to say what you wrote, but you wrote, yeah, systemic racism. Exactly. Let me tell you about systemic racism. And I wrote, Systemic racism, really, you know. So we were coming at fairly uh, different uh, things. And I think Sam thought, and I think I thought, I think, and you thought that it'd be good for us to talk about it. So that's why we're here. It sure is. As I recall correctly, your kind of top line about it was systemic racism is a bludgeon and a bluff. And in a way, I think you wrote it sort of condescending to the people that it's actually trying to lift up. And then my perspective was using a concrete example of a recent client that I had to talk about sort of what had happened to him and how to me it was representative of the system operating in a racist way. So we're definitely coming at it from different perspectives. I'm coming at it from kind of like a concrete, this is what it's like litigating on the ground perspective. And you're coming at it, I think, for more of a, this is my life experience. This is what I've read. This is what I've thought about and written. And this is kind of what I see from a 10,000 foot view. Yeah, I don't like that. Uh, <laughs> I don't like, I don't, I don't like being put up at 10,000 feet. I'm going to try to defend myself. Let me say where I'm coming at it. I'm coming at it from an exasperation with the rhetoric, which I think is unresponsive to the condition. The rhetoric is black victimization, systemic racism. It, it is a kind of the structure is so messed up that of course we've got black failure. And I'm saying people have choices. Institutions are, are failing. Values are not what they should be. I agree that there are external forces, but this is, if this is the rhetoric of black people, if this is where we're putting our energy. So when I say a bluff and a bludgeon, I mean, you know, people, will invoke systemic racism when confronted with something like, uh, look at the achievement gap in, high, in education or look at the higher rates of criminal offending and incarceration. And I, I mean, I'm like, nobody is coming to save us. I'm like, this is what they do at the New York Times editorial page or at the MacArthur Foundation when they're trying to bring themselves into some sense of accommodation with the realities of these inequalities, but the, the foundation of these inequalities is not systemic racism, that's a vestige. The foundation of these inequalities is uh, patterns of behavior and uh, value and orientation and whatnot of the community itself. And I'm saying the opportunities here, no, they're not equal, but if you compare, take the long historical trajectory you know, 1865 to 2021, the, the, the uh, 
transformation of possibilities of, uh, I mean, equal citizenship, I think is pretty close to to being the case. You got Barack Obama being president of the United States. You got black CEOs and billionaires. You got uh, uh, et cetera. So uh, I'm not trying to engage myself with your cases. I have done that. And I'll stop because I know I'm talking too long. My book, Race, Incarceration, and American Values, which drew out, grew out of my uh, Tanner lectures at uh, Stanford in 2007. It was published in 2008. Me and Bruce Western, Bruce Western uh, at Columbia University, sociologist who's, uh, you know, we put a National Academy of Sciences panel together with all these top experts, produced a report in 2015 on the causes and consequences of high rates of incarceration, had a whole project at the American... Academy of Arts and Sciences. We put out an issue of Daedalus that was devoted to this, to this theme. I mean, you know, uh, I spent a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Read my intellectual obituary of James Q. Wilson. James Q. Wilson, the intellectual godfather of the anti-crime and rising incarceration uh, coming out of the 1970s and the 1980s, neoconservative Harvard law professor, UCLA, uh, uh, politics professor, UCLA, um, I accuse him of dying with blood on his hands. I mean, uh, I'll stop. Loic Vacant, who is a distinguished left-wing sociologist, spends a lot of time in Paris and in Berkeley, flew overnight so that he could be a respondent to my Tanner lectures at Stanford in 2007 because he said Black intellectuals are not addressing themselves to the problem of mass incarceration and to the racist aspect of it, says Laquant. Cornell West praises me for, you know, in the in, in a forward of um, uh, one edition of Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, praises me as having been one of, among one of those people. So I'm, I, I've gone on for a long time. Thank you. I'm way past the finger pointing. The world is turning and it's moving forward. We don't develop these people. He's got a gun. I agree that uh, this is Utico Briley, about whom you will have a good deal more to say. Poor kid, he's on the street with a gun in his pocket. You know what I'm saying? And, and uh, okay, so you have let me vent. I think I should stop and allow you to say something. So let me start by, by saying where you and I agree, because I actually feel like there's maybe more, more overlap than you might think. So I agree with you that systemic racism is to some degree an overused word. And to the extent that it's used to explain every single failure, every single failure in the education system, every single failure in the healthcare system and the criminal justice system, and sort of the catch-all explanation for persistent inequality, I think that is an overuse and an overextension and elasticizing the term beyond what it's meant to describe. And I also agree with you that to some extent, if you if you do it that way, in kind of the Robin D'Angelo, Ibram Kendi way, you are stripping people of agency. And I think you've made that point eloquently in the past. So I feel like there's a baseline on which there's not a lot of daylight between us. But where you and I really sharply diverge is you saying, well, when we talk about structural racism, you know, we're talking about vestiges of the past. Look, you know, we don't have chattel slavery. We don't have Jim Crow. We have the Voting Rights Act. You can point to all of these inflection points. We had a black president. Look at all of the forward moving progress that we've made, which of course is, is utterly undeniable. What I would say in response to that is, 
That's true. And at the same time, racism and racist practices are baked into institutions that seem race neutral on their face. And that continues to be the case. So I'll just give you I'll just give you an example, which is within the criminal justice system, which is the institution, obviously, that I'm, I'm the most familiar with. And so you had mentioned my client, Utico Briley Jr., who was exonerated this year and whose case I wrote about when Barry Weiss solicited our respective pieces about what is structural racism. And there's a couple of things I think that are important to point out about this case. And I'm going to put a pinhole in the point that you made about him having a gun. But a couple of things to point out. When you and John were briefly discussing this, John McWhorter, you said, you know, that's a horrible case and this is a terrible thing to happen. But essentially, Lara Bazelon is, is using an anecdote to try to make a bigger point. So what's sort of the data behind that? And you said, we shall see. And when I listened to you to discuss that, I thought a lot about what is the data. And a couple of things occurred to me about Utico's case. The first one is that he was sentenced under something called the habitual offender law in Louisiana. And that law comes out of what are known as these pig laws. I don't know if that term is familiar to you, but basically after Reconstruction failed and Jim Crow ensued, these laws were put into effect to basically target black sharecroppers and go after them for things like stealing pigs and vegetables and things like that. And it was a way to sort of perpetuate the system of incarceration and impose these really draconian penalties. And this isn't my characterization. This is a justice on the Louisiana Supreme Court talking about why these habitual offender laws are kind of rooted in Jim Crow and rooted in racism when they upheld an unfathomably long sentence for a man for for stealing hedge clippers. But essentially what these laws do is they allow the prosecution to look at someone like my client who had one prior conviction at the age of 17 that was nonviolent and say, okay, without habitual offender, you're looking at a 10-year mandatory minimum. But if we if we do this to you and we apply this law to you, your punishment goes from a mandatory 10 to a mandatory 50, and then basically topping out at 198 years. And so that is, in fact, what they did to him. And they imposed that penalty on him, essentially for exercising his right to go to trial. And so what you've got is a 19 year old kid who was wrongfully convicted of a robbery. But let's just say for the sake of argument that he was rightfully convicted of it. It's a 90 second robbery. And I'm not saying it's not terrifying, but nobody was injured. One hundred dollars was taken. And for that, because he had one prior drug conviction, he got 60 years with no possibility of parole. Now, adding insult to injury, he happened to be innocent. So it's just an absolute monstrosity. But they hand out these sentences in Orleans Parish, or they did when Leon Canazero was the DA, like candy. And nine out of 10 of the people who got them were Black. And I know that you can come back at me and say, well, statistics show that Black people are more likely or percentage-wise commit a higher rate of of violent offenses. But I'm just really hard pressed to believe that the percentages are so grotesquely out of whack that really nine out of 10 people who are getting these sentences are black. And so what you end up doing is perpetuating the system of mass incarceration. You then look at what that looks like on the other side. And what that looks like on the other side is shipping these people off. And some of them are teenagers to serve out the rest of their lives on slave plantations, because that's what these prisons are. They're converted slave plantations. And then they're put out to work in the fields, picking crops, including cotton overseen by by people on on horseback with shotguns. And when you go out there and you look at that, you look at that tableau, it's very hard not to think 
wow, what has really changed between now and and the pre-Civil War conditions in, in the Deep South. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that Louisiana was one of two states until last year that permitted non-unanimous jury verdicts. And so you might say, well, what's racist about that? Well, when you look at the history of these non-unanimous verdicts, they too come out of the end of Reconstruction. And basically what a lot of the Southern states decided was, okay, Black people are on juries. We can't do anything about that, but we're going to weigh the percentages and we're going to nullify their votes. So we're going to assume based on population that maybe two Black people end up on every jury. And if 10 to two is enough to convict, then their votes don't matter. And that that practice, which is clearly racially rooted, was enshrined and used until the Supreme Court disallowed it last year. And in fact, Utico's jury arguably was non-unanimous on top of everything else, although we couldn't conclusively prove that. So anyway, now I've been talking for a while. I'll no, I, I just want to ask you, first of all, your, your, your first bit uh, about the enhanced sentencing uh, is very powerful. And I want to I want to address it in the imagery of uh of slavery being reenacted uh, on the on the on the unanimous uh, unanimous jury thing. <laughs> I smile because it's going to sound absurd, but here is the theoretical argument that you would make. There's racial loyalty such that a defendant who's on the evidence guilty is likely to be acquitted by a co-racialist juror. I don't want to give them veto power over the administration of justice. Therefore, we're going to uh, not have cases in which they're the only ones voting to acquit. But the evidence and the rest of the jury is voting to convict. And so to prevent that from happening, I do the thing that you do. Now, I don't actually want to make that argument. I just want to say that the difference between that argument and your argument is about the motive of the legislature that implements this particular way of assessing cases. Uh, and uh, what we think is going on in the micro behavior of jurors when they're making their decisions about whether or not on given set of evidence to convict. Um, and, and so, <laughs> I, you know, I, I could see the other side of that case. That's all I'm saying. And I, I know that that sounds absurd. But on the first part, it's an abomination. It's, it's, an, it's an unspeakable outrage that you would put someone in prison for, was it 40 years? Was that what uh, Briley's sentence was? 60, 60. years on, under the conditions that you describe. And that's quite apart from... Uh, you can describe in greater detail uh, all of the uh, circumstances and mitigating evidence and lost uh, 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 security footage from the motel and phone records that had been allowed to expire and defense attorney uh, incompetency or, or villainy, really. They, they won't uh, even file a, a thing until they get their money and then they, they still don't uh, perform, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, what am I trying to say? You, you graphically powerfully characterize, uh, injustice, racial injustice. Uh, I'll accept that. I'll accept that because both the application of it is racially wildly disparate, as you noted, because the, 
historical genesis of it has its roots in uh, efforts at racial domination. I'll acknowledge that. Um, so th this is definitely a corner of our uh, social and legal uh, structure that that where there needs to be a house cleaning, there needs to be a broom swept clean here. Uh, something is dreadfully wrong. Uh, I've got, what is it? Two point something million under lock and key on a given day, maybe one and a half million of those in prison and 750,000 in jail, something like that. Um, of that massive uh, structure, what, what fraction is generated by the kind of villainy that you've described uh, coming out of New Orleans? And what fraction is a reflection of mundane, uh, ordinary day-to-day -day grinding of uh, processes of justice that any society would have to administer uh, regardless of its uh, racial history? Um, if I cut the sentences on uh, the offending from 40 years in the cases like Briley's to four years, uh, how much of the mass incarceration problem of the racial disparity in it would go away? How much of the violent crime and so forth would go away? Am I right to even invoke violent crime here? And what about that gun? You are right to invoke violent crime because most not now that a lot of states, including my state, California, are changing their laws so that people convicted of nonviolent crimes aren't serving such long sentences. It's becoming more and more clear that if you really want to reverse the effects of mass incarceration, you have to deal differently with people convicted of violent crimes because they're the people that are locked up for the longest periods of time and they're a large percentage of the population in prison. So you're right, you have to address that. And you have to talk honestly about that. Why do people commit violent crimes? Why is it that statistically speaking, black people are more likely to commit violent crimes, et cetera. And you also asked the question, what about this gun, right? And so I guess I'll take, I'll take the first question first. So I think that the empirical data, which I'm not going to delve into because I'm not an empiricist, establishes that we are locking people up for way too long, violent and nonviolent alike. And that at a certain point, most people, black, white, regardless of race, ethnicity, and gender, will age out of violent offending behavior. And that really, when you have people who are who are blind, who are using walkers, we are paying college level, Yale level tuitions to keep them incarcerated year after year. It just doesn't make any sense. So I think that we have to kind of get over this idea. It's kind of a biblical idea of an eye for an eye and also that people are essentially irredeemable, right? And then it's not that you committed a robbery, but that you're a robber. And it's not that you committed a murder, but you are a murderer. And you'll never, ever get beyond this thing that you did that's going to define your life and, and, and end your life in a cage. So there's that issue. There's then the issue of, OK, well, why are there sort of racially disparate um, percentages behind offending? Right. And so. I think you're on the side of people need to take personal responsibility. And you've talked about the breakdown of, of the black family. And to me, this is a lot about cause and effect and, and where you put the cause and where you put the effect. So with that, I'll return to my concrete example, which again is, is Utico and you asking me, what about this gun? What about this gun? And so here's the deal with somebody like Utico. And it's not, it's not an uncommon situation for young black men really across the United States, it's a pretty common story, which is that you have someone who is who is talented, who is smart, 
who is funny, who's athletic. He's not so athletic that he's going to become a pro athlete. He's not going to get some kind of college scholarship, but he's in the gifted and talented program in his high school. At the same time, his home life is, is a mess because he's the oldest of 10 kids. His mom is, I would say, neglectful. His dad was incarcerated when he was five. And that was obviously just an absolutely devastating event for his personal development and also just for having someone to, to be a father figure to him. And what does he know how to do to support himself when the lights go out and when they're evicted and when there's no food in the refrigerator, he knows how to sell drugs. And so that's what he does. He goes and he sells drugs and that's how he makes a living. And you know, he wants to go to school not smelling bad and wearing the same clothes every day, which is what's going to happen if he doesn't have this money. He wants to live in a place where the lights are on and where there's food in the refrigerator. And that's only going to happen if he's now able to basically support himself and his family in this illegal way. Okay, so now that's happening. And because that's an inherently dangerous business, he's going to go get a gun, which of course he's not supposed to have. Eventually he's going to get busted for selling drugs. And that's going to be a felony, even though he's 17 in Louisiana, they treat you like an adult or they did. And then he has a gun, he gets busted for that. And then he's a felon in possession. And then, you know, the gun of course was, was the reason why he was stopped. Right. And then the reason why he kind of got tangled up in this, in this armed robbery case and became a suspect really for no good reason, but they figured, well, the guy who, who robbed Mr. Joseph was a black kid in a hoodie. And here we have a black kid in a hoodie and that guy had a gun and this kid has a gun and good enough. And so I guess my question to you is like, what is, what, what is somebody like Utico really supposed to do? And if you look at sort of the historical condition of the, of the Briley family, which is, I think the condition of so many people coming out of generations of oppression and racism, how do you not say that that's like a, a precipitating cause of so much of what we're seeing now, at least when we talk about the underclass in the United States? Okay. Given uh, his background and the nature of his life, the structure that he was embedded in, the community they was in, the opportunities, his behavior is not inexplicable. Indeed, it's perhaps not even surprising. Maybe it's even predictable. So we could get into an argument about how much choice did he really have. Um, and, you know, I accept that uh, there's something just willfully uh, sort of indifferent to the sort of pathos and the, the nuance of the of the human situation here to to wag a finger and to say you've always got choice, you've always got choice. Uh, I agree that he was dealt a very bad hand. I guess the question is when we catch him with the gun, what are we going to do? And, and, you know, 60 years, uh, you know, obviously it's everything that you said that it was, uh, there's also the victim and in this particular case, the victim wasn't harmed. He might've been harmed. She, they often are harmed. The victim in this case was white. Do I get that correct? Yes. But often, perhaps even most often, the victims are going to be 
people in a similar situation of disadvantage and limited options. Uh, I mean, I think our sentences are too long. I agree with that. I mean, I, I don't know that there's any deterrent value in a sentence that's longer than a few years for anything. I mean, what really matters is that the application of the sentences be relatively proximate to the act that you're trying to deter someone from taking. Um, I, I don't know what to do, though, with uh, large numbers of offenders who are actually perpetrating these acts. Uh, and, and I'm not sure what your you asked me the question. I'm turning the question back around. I mean, my answer to your question is, of course, there was a, a cause in the environment and in the condition. Of, of course, that's causally implicated in the act. Um, I don't want to deprive people of free will. We've already been over that. But I mean, I want to turn the question back around on you, which is to say, what is the law supposed to mean? What, what about the idea that people are protected by the law, protected against the violation of their person and their property? Uh, I was very interested in the political dimensions of the story that your sister Emily tells and that New York Times piece describing the case that you've been talking about of Utico Briley. Very interested in the fact that the judges are elected and that the judge who sat on the initial case was not the judge who presided over the exoneration. Very interested in the fact that the district attorneys are elected and that the district attorney who allowed for the bringing of the renewal of the case was a very different political animal than the district attorney who had a presided over the case in the in the onset. And even the new justice oriented district attorney was mindful of the image problem that he might have should he be seen not to be attentive to the interest of the victim in, in, in this particular case. I, I, I think that's got to be part of the answer, although I am I think the jury is still out on the experiment. What I mean is part of the answer has got to be democratic control over the instruments of justice, where the community, which must bear both the cost of the offending as well as the cost of the punishment, gets a voice in the decision-making about weighing the relative significance of the equities that you and I have identified on the one hand, Kid never had a chance. Of course, he was slinging rocks on the corner or whatever he was doing, given the milieu. And if he's doing that, he damn sure better have a pistol because otherwise he's just waiting to get robbed. Uh, that's one of the equities. And then you're going to throw his life. You're going to throw him on a dung heap of human debris. You're going to just deny all of his humanity. You're just going to assimilate him to this blob of offenders. Uh, you know, that's there's callousness in that. That's one equity. On the other hand, are we not going to have law? Are, are, are we not? Are we not going to have constraint? Are, are, really, are we going to subject a state of nature on uh, to our people to a state of nature? Who the ones of us who have choice? I don't know where you live in San Francisco, but I damn sure know where I live in Providence, Rhode Island, and it's not where I can hear gunshots. So that's another equity, and I think if the communities who are the ones bearing the weight here are engaged in the wing of those equities. And if the political discourse is broad enough to admit of a 
voicing of these equities. I mean, a thorough voicing. Victims have rights. I mean, I, victims have have a, should have a voice. This is we can't be indifferent. You know, if he's carrying a gun, there's a damn good chance that sooner or later he's going to use it. So, so what did I say? There is so much to cover in what you said in these equities. So let me start with you talking about victims, because I think that's fascinating and important. So you're right. Every violent crime has a victim. And it was really interesting to see this new reform DA, Jason Williams in Orleans Parish, grapple with the fact that he had a victim to consider in Utico's case. Now, the DA did not believe that Utico was the person who who made this guy a victim, but he nonetheless was a victim. And there was this holdup at the last minute, basically, where the DA's office decided, you know, we know this is wrong. We know Utico doesn't belong there and we want to rectify this. And they had told the judge that in an, in an email. But hold on, we've got to put the brakes on because we've got to make meaningful contact with this victim and we have to give him time to process what happened. And so we had a status conference to discuss this. And because I live in, in California and this was all in, in New Orleans, this was on Zoom, it was six o'clock in the morning my time, which I thought was too early for me to get angry. But in fact, <laughs> I nonetheless did get somewhat fired up because they basically wanted an indefinite continuance until they were able to reach this man who lives abroad. And what I did in arguing to go forward immediately was talk about who is really the victim here. There really are two victims. When you're talking about a wrongfully convicted person and Utico had just been stabbed and he had open wounds, they weren't treating him. He was in a rat infested cell and he'd been there for eight years. And then you have this other guy who, as you said, yes, it's terrifying to be robbed, but it was not violent. He lost $100. And that was also said was this, this, it per, this individual had a Twitter account where he was retweeting Black Lives Matter quotes. And so I read one of them to the judge and it said words to the effect of how long do Black people have to wait for justice? This is what the white victim was, was tweeting out. And I said, look, I don't know if this is performative or not, but I can tell you this. Here is one black life that this person can impact in a positive way. And to have the idea that we're going to elevate his victim status over and above the harm that's being perpetuated on my client doesn't make any sense, even with the beliefs this person says that they espouse. And so anyways, the long story short is that we did end up going forward the the following day, but The point that you make is still an important point, which is that victims have rights, victims have needs, victims have harms, and they deserve some kind of recompense and some kind of remedy. Now, in this particular case, this victim's probably never going to get it because we'll never find the person who, who actually robbed him. I think that chance is probably somewhere around zero. But what about all of these people who actually are harmed and what is it that they want and what is it that they need? And I think you have made in the past points about the communities themselves, that much of this crime is intra-community. It's it's intra-racial. It's happening within racial groups. And so you're harming your own communities. And I think I've written a lot about this recently, about 
how we tend to reduce victims. And we assume that all victims want what I call the carceral solution, which is lock people up for as long as possible. And, you know, the, the evidence doesn't suggest that that's true. Now, some victims really do want that. They want the carceral solution. Other victims want shorter sentences. They want services. They want rehabilitation. They want restorative justice because they don't want all the young men in their community ripped out of it and their community sort of defenestrated of of young black men, for example. On the other hand, and this goes to your point, um, my sister and I had a really interesting conversation with Utico in June. We kind of got, got into it a bit because the DA who had exonerated him was coming under some fire for progressives for charging a kid, I think he was 15, with a carjack murder after campaigning on a promise that he was not going to charge kids as adults. And so the progressive community was really up in arms about this decision by the same DA who you and I have been talking about. And so my sister brought this up and Utico responded by talking about how horrible that crime was, that this kid had carjacked an elderly woman who was just a regular citizen driving in her car and, and he'd murdered her. And that if he got a short sentence and went to juvenile hall, he was going to go out and do it again. And that he needed to go to prison for a certain amount of time. And this is, of course, our black exonerated client telling us that in some cases like this case, you need some kind of a carceral solution. And so it was so interesting. And he felt like fervently about it. It wasn't even that he was on the fence. He was saying, this person is dangerous. If you don't lock them up for a certain amount of time, they're going to go out and they're going to murder someone else. This woman did not deserve to lose her life. This was a terrible crime. And there needs to be a consequence, which leads me to the final thing I want to say about this, which was when Utico was charged, his dad told him, take this deal. They're offering you 10 years. Take it. Take it. They're saying you robbed a white man. You're not going to get a fair trial. You're good for the gun. You're running the streets. You need a timeout. Take the timeout. And Utico said, I'm not going to plead to something I didn't do. I don't want to go to prison for it. And his dad said, but you need, you really need a timeout because you're going to get shot and killed or you're going to do something worse. You need to take it, not because it's what you did, but because it's what you need. And so it is really interesting, all of these perspectives, including the perspective of people, some people in the Black community who've been caught up in the system themselves, who have, who have ideas that you wouldn't necessarily expect them to have. You know, that's very deep. That's so interesting. Utico himself saying of this wild-eyed kid who jacks a car and then kills somebody, that's a dangerous person. You need them off the street. His father saying to him when he's forced to confront the plea deal decision, man, you're on a bad road here. You're not headed anywhere good. You might as well go in the prison and sit for a while and chill. That's That sounds like reality. That That's, that's, that's pretty interesting. So... Okay. Have we agreed to disagree or what do, do we disagree? I mean, yeah, I guess we do disagree about emphasis. Do we disagree about emphasis? Uh, we disagree about cause and effect to some degree, I think. And we disagree about how much it's, it's a vestige, how much systemic racism is a vestige versus a, an ongoing baked in part of current American systems. Now, what about my allegations early on that uh, there's failure in the midst of African-American life here, that there are too many broken families, there's too much 
uh, in discipline. There's, there's, you're, you're thinking people are simply succumbing to their circumstances. What can they do? I'm, and I'm thinking, no, we have to not only at the individual level, but at the communal level, uh, take responsibility and embrace the possibility of, of, of the control of overcoming, of resisting. Uh, do we really have to live with what we're seeing in Chicago and St. Louis and Baltimore and whatnot in terms of homicide rates and so on and carjacking and assault? And, you know, I mean, the, um, and what about the politics of this? Eric Adams, isn't that the guy's name who's getting ready to get elected mayor? This is a former cop in the lives in the era of Black Lives Matter. The Soros funded, I'm sorry for the cliche, but it is Soros funded uh, these justice DAs all around the country. You got the, you know, the Corey Bush types of uh, St. Louis and the, you know, the Larry Krasners of Philadelphia. And the, the, they, don't they have one in San Francisco? And we get, you know, are they are they going to carry the day here um, or? When you let somebody out because you don't believe in pretrial detention and you think that minor property offenses oughtn't to be uh, enforced, uh, you know, and I'm certainly not going to have cops spending time bringing me cases of somebody with marijuana. Uh, is the jury in now on whether the consequences of that kind of institutionalization of your cast of mind, if I may say so? is going to work on the streets and whether people are going to be able to live with the consequences of it. A, is the uptick in crime in any way related to the uh, justice warrior, Black Lives Matter, reformist, uh, whatever? And, and, and B, are the people going to stand for it? Okay, so this goes back to what you were talking about before when you were talking about the equities and kind of the changing face of the criminal justice system and and I will say my sort of bottom line about this <clears throat> is that you're right. It is the institutionalization of views like mine, which I never thought in my life that I would see, because when I started practicing law in Los Angeles in federal court in the year 2001, if you had told me a public defender with incarcerated parents is going to run and win for DA in San Francisco, I would have told you that you were out of your mind. If you had told me that he was going to be one of 10 or 15 that was going to be in power in cities that have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people and implementing policies that were basically pipe dreams, I would have told you that you are out of your mind. And here we are today, and that's the case. So then the question is, what's the result of all of this? Now, I think the jury is out because these these guys haven't and women, they haven't been in power long enough for us to really see. We had, I think the canary in the coal mine is really Larry Krasner in Philadelphia because he was kind of the first one to run and win from a public defender civil rights background. And he just got reelected, at least in the Democratic primary, which in Philadelphia, that's the whole race. And he pounded his his tough on crime opponent. So that does suggest some kind of a staying power for progressive prosecutors, even though violent crime is up in Philadelphia. And there's a lot of outcry about that. Um, so I think we're going to see we're going to see when all these other folks come up and they're seeking second terms, what happens to them? I guess your question is, well, what's going to happen when we release people or what is happening now when, when we're letting people out on bail much more, much more often. And, you know, that's a complicated 
discussion. But one thing that we were doing, which I think was completely just not just wrong sort of morally, but didn't make any sense, is that we were criminalizing poverty. We were saying, okay, you're going to take two people and they're going to commit the same crime and we're going to put an amount on it. So if it's a charge of armed robbery, you need to pay $30,000 to get out. It's the exact same crime. Well, the, the rich robber is going to pay and get out and be dangerous and be on the streets. And the poor robber is going to be inside. Never mind, of course, the presumption of innocence. And lots of times people who are charged, they can't prove it. They didn't do it, et cetera. And so this whole idea of monetizing freedom, to me, never made any sense. It does not address the ultimate question, which is, is this person, is this person dangerous? You're just putting a price that some people can pay and some people can't. That doesn't make any sense. And I think that cash bail was a bloated industry that basically propped up these these bail institutions that were shaking people down, taking percentages, not giving it back, et cetera. So, and not really doing anything to address safety. So I think bail is a problem. Then your question is, well, if we're releasing all these people, are we gonna see upticks in crime, right? And I feel like, again, these bail reform laws haven't been haven't been in effect long enough, certainly not in California, where our Supreme Court just basically did away with that whole system and said, you've got to do something different for us to really know. But it's hard for me to believe that locking up people for nonviolent offenses like drug crimes and 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 loitering and things of that nature, that when you let them out, violent crime is going to soar. But then you make this other point, which is look at what just happened in New York City, because we had all these people running on a progressive platform. They lost to a former cop. And what do we make about that? And is that a turning point? And why is it that New Yorkers number one concern, number one concern was crime? What? And I find that to be a very vexing question, because When you look at the crime statistics over time, and I mean, starting from the 90s, the spikes that we saw in the 90s, we are not seeing those spikes now. The the rise that we are seeing, the uptick that we are seeing is relatively mild, is relatively um, gradated versus these huge spikes in the 1990s. And yet in the public mind, they're basically the same. And a lot of ways that the media covers it is basically the same and kind of contributes to this panic that the crime is completely out of control. But when you look at the actual numbers, they're very small. So for example, in New York in the 1990s, I think at one point, there were almost 2,500 murders that year. This past year, there've been 450. That's more than the 200 and something the year before, but you can see how statistically it's nowhere near the spikes that we were seeing. So then you have to ask yourself, well, to what degree is the media contributing to this? To what degree are are the people who are now out of power, the tough on crimers seizing on this to try to get back in power and reinstitute their old policies, which I feel like you and I can probably agree, at least to some extent, were a failure. Well, I should probably know the crime statistics better than I do. Uh, I know people who know them, and I think they would disagree with your assessment of the both impact of, for example, eliminating pretrial detention and also of the year-to-year changes here. I agree that they're not what we saw in the 90s. No, how could they have been? Uh, what was the homicide rate in New York? One of those, over 2,000 in a year or something like that. And it's under, what is it, under three or 400? Correct. So, uh, no, no, we, we this is not the 1990s by any means. Who knows where it will go? I don't, you know, it's early on in the uptick, but uh, my understanding is that homicide in big cities is up like 30% on average over uh, over the year before. 
And my understanding is that uh, changes that are going on, including changes in people's uh, in, in, in policing and behavior of police, you know, the so-called Ferguson effect. I know it's so very, very controversial. Um, my uh, former student and someone whom I admire, Roland Fryer, the economist, has got some data on uh, Basically, I mean, arguing that police departments that are under scrutiny uh, are uh, the behavior of police officers in terms of stops and the aggressiveness of their engagement is going down and that that is associated causally with increases in crime. I wish that I could cite chapter and verse. I want to just register a a um, objection here uh, to your your quantitative characterization of the thing. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down. It, I, I accept your arguments, the theoretical arguments about the inequity of uh, cash bail. Uh, people haven't been convicted. And moreover, those with the cash are the only ones who are going to be able to avail themselves of the option of being out of uh, jail during a, the pretrial period. That there's something that seems unjust about that. I, I, I grant that. Although I think that if I have a large number of people who are offending, some of whom are getting apprehended, some of whom are who are apprehended are innocent, some of whom are guilty. We could say what those numbers are. I'm thinking 95 percent, 5 percent. But we could argue about those numbers. And I know I'm going to have recidivism in this in this population amongst those who are offending. It seems hard to avoid just as a matter of arithmetic, the consequence that if I don't keep people who have been apprehended, which is some indicator of the likelihood that they have offended uh, before trial. The fact of letting them out will also let out some people who actually are offenders and who are going to reoffend in the period during which they otherwise would have been confined. That that feels to me like that's that's necessary. It it may be an unfortunate necessity that one has to uh, has to take as as uh, the. Uh, unavoidable consequence of ensuring that in, individuals are treating justly, but I don't. I don't see why you need to deny that uh, uh, someone who was a convicted, or I'm sorry, who was apprehended and uh, charged with a gun crime, uh, and who is then released. Uh, and and if I'm doing this as a, a matter of uh, ordinary uh, course of business, that the consequence of that will be. Uh, some uh, enhancement of the frequency with which gun crimes are committed against people because offenders are going to be uh, have more time, on, you know, to offend. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I had another point, but it, it escapes my it escapes my mind. Can we change the subject? Yeah. Now, I only say that audience, not that I'm uncomfortable with talking about the dark underside of American criminal justice. It is dark, but that there is another side to Laura Bazelon that everybody ought to know about, that she is a talented writer of fiction and she has a book out there, Good Mother, that I read, you sent it to me kindly. This is a work of uh, courtroom drama, fiction thriller uh you know that i just could not put down that it's written so beautifully and i thought god i wish that i could write like that i mean you know describing a person uh or a room into which we're entering uh or or the feeling that somebody is having i'm thinking how do you how do you know how to say so that when i read it i can really feel what they're feeling uh i i really was impressed by your book laura 
That is incredibly meaningful to me coming from someone like you, because <clears throat> you are uh, not just a prolific writer, but a penetrating writer and someone who has achieved so much more than I ever have or probably will. And so the fact that you even read the book, I figured you would, you know, put it on a shelf and forget about it. Excuse me for interrupting. (laughs) I want to hear you, but I didn't intend to read it. I'm sitting at the breakfast table. The mail, the mail is there, this book. So I start looking at it and I said, oh, and, and then uh, I don't know what, but later in that day, I'm sitting out by the pool and I needed something to do. My phone was charging. So I take this book and I read on for another few pages. I said, huh. And the next thing you know, <laughs> I'm at the dinner table with this book in my head and I'm still reading it because you just drew me in. Can I ask you a question? What's so that? it's called A Good Mother. Do you think that that title is ironic? Uh so can I say anything about the book? Let yeah, me yeah, say yeah. that the drama of the book is built around a woman who's accused of killing her husband because apparently she did kill her husband. Uh, he's a military man and she's a young uh, and, and, you know, whatever. And uh, she's a mother. And it's a courtroom drama because she has a, a public defender who is this yeah, this is one of the things I loved about it. Is that you, Laura, by the way? I mean, this woman is on a mission. This woman is a mad, she's a wild woman. She's crazy. She's driven. She's a perfectionist. She's a, she's a you know, a, a pugilist, I think it's fair to say. I don't know what she won't do to win her case. Um, and she's expecting and having a baby and has a baby to nurse and whatnot like that. So there's, there's this motherhood theme that's going on. Um, yeah, I did kind of think it was, I did kind of think it was ironic, uh, uh, at the end. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on whether or not I, I buy completely the, the argument that, uh, this husband was abusive and that, and that she really had no choice but to kill him. And there's enough room in the book for the reader to come to the end of the book and not know for sure whether or not that's true. Uh, And therefore, she might not be all that good. Was she really defending her infant against the tyrannical madman who had lost it? I don't know if I completely bought that. Now, if I had been in her position, would I have stabbed this dude? Probably. (laughs) <laughs> do you think that her lawyer was a good mother that having this baby of her own then cutting her maternity leave short by one half to come back and do this yeah and, and leaving her husband not really her husband but uh the guy that she's with who's the father of the kid uh to take leave off from his job so that he can take care of the kid and trying to nurse the kid on the side while she's racing with her into court with her sheaf of papers in her briefcase you don't try to nurse the kid <laughs> Uh, I know she wasn't a good mother. I don't see any, you know, I mean, what did her friend, the gay guy that was the buddy of hers tell her? I mean, I thought he told her straight. I thought he told it to her straight. She was selfish. She was manic. She was obsessive. She was, she was driven. You need people like that in the world. Otherwise the wheels don't turn. But, uh, 
I don't know how you square that with being a good mother. I mean, she wanted to be a good mother. <laughs> so it's. I mean, it's, she's falling asleep yeah. in the bathtub with the kid. She could have really drowned that kid. Um, well, listen, no one can tell her anything. So you asked, you know, is this woman me? And, and you know, she's me on some kind of steroids, just extra, 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 because I'm, I'm not that brilliant a lawyer and I wouldn't do a lot of the reckless things that, that, that she does, um, some of which are very ethically questionable. But what I really wanted to look at is this idea, as you say, we need people this driven in, in, in their various fields, right? And I guess what I was trying to push on was that we tell our law students you need to be zealous lawyers, but we don't tell them you need to be a zealot. But you know what? That's the truth. If you want to take the really hard cases and you want to be a great lawyer, you have to be a zealot. And I don't mean that in a terrorist extremist way. I mean it in a fanatical, almost blind devotion to your client and to your cause. And if that's true, if my theory is true, then something has to give. And when you look at the kind of pressure, for example, that that young mothers are under or or our ideas about who's supposed to be the primary caretaker, the give is going to come at the home front. And so I really wanted to just test that belief because my belief as, as a feminist and as a single mom who's ambitious and fanatical about my cases and has two young kids is that sometimes your kids, your kids do not come first, which is a very controversial point of view. And my feeling is sometimes they do, and then sometimes your client needs you more, in which case they temporarily take a back seat. And it is certainly true that my kids have had to take a back seat at various times. And so it's a question that I've been sort of asking myself my whole life, which is, am I a good mother or am I a, a, a terrible mother? Am I doing them a, a disservice when, you know, I leave for stretches of time because I have a trial and, you know, it's a question of whether my client's going to get out of prison or not, which I did when they were two and four, because my client was incarcerated for 34 years for something he didn't do. And I moved to LA temporarily to retry that case to get him out. And when I talked to my son about it, I said, look, you know, Cash needs to go home and be with his mother. And so that's why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. But you always wonder, well, what's the end result of that? Are my kids going to be in therapy for the rest of their life? Are they going to feel like I'm neglectful? Right. And so you're constantly asking yourself that. And at the same time, here's what I ask myself, like, would people be questioning those choices if I was their dad? Right. And like, would you be reacting in the same way if this individual, this protagonist was a new dad? And I guess I'm thinking you probably wouldn't. Well, Yes, that was my actually I had two reactions and that was one of them uh, with the same question arise in the case of the father. Um, uh, What I wanted to say is. Something's got to give. So the reason that it doesn't come instinctively to mind to raise that question with respect to the dad is because there's a good mother there in the background who's holding down the fort while the dad is out cutting down the trees. Um, So if it happens that it's the mother of the children who is also the tree cutter, well, if they're both going to be tree cutters, nobody's going to be there to take care of the kids. So presumably the reason that two people, two adults, two souls made it together in a family structure are better than one 
for the purpose of raising kids. I believe that to be the case. I know that's a controversial thing to say would be because it allows for this kind of give and take and this kind of thing. Now, if the patriarchal inheritance and the assumptions of the husband and all the rest are preclude him being able to give and take and, and you guys being able to make uh, a uh, go of it, taking all of the various things into account and your values and what you're trying to achieve, then, um, then, you know, that, that would, that's one thing, but if, if, if uh, it's all on the mother, well, that, that, that's an injustice. That's a, that's a part of what uh, the liberation of women understood in the broadest sense should, should uh, be uh, aiming at uh, reversing. In other words, fathers have to step up too, right? I think so. And I feel like I've been lucky because my, my marriage didn't survive, but my ex-husband is an excellent, excellent father and very committed and a, and a co-parent in the best sense of the word. And it really is equal in terms of the responsibility we have. And I realize that I'm in a very lucky position because a lot of women whose relationships don't work out, they don't have that. And so it's completely on them. But I do think it's important. I do think it's important for a lot of women to know that that it's not great. It's not great to be at the financial mercy of anybody else, be it a, a partner um, when the relationship may not work out, be it the state, be it whatever. And I guess that's always been drilled into me by my mom, who was born basically into near poverty. And her way out was to get a bunch of scholarships, go to Bryn Mawr, go to medical school in the 1960s when most women weren't doing that. And even after she met my dad, just not take her foot off the gas. And I think her feeling was anything can go wrong and I need to be able to support myself and I need to be able to support my kids. And so the example she set was basically, you need to have this other thing outside of your marriage and your children that you can fall back on so that you can be self-reliant. And also so that you can, if you feel that you have a purpose outside of the home, that you can live out that purpose. And she really kind of drilled that into my sisters and I, in a way that I think has been much more influential than I ever realized. But the other thing that's sort of interesting, and I, and this is, I, I'm, I just finished a draft of a book about, partly about my, my mom and partly just about ambitious women in general. But what was also interesting was that, you know, in some ways my parents' marriage was quite traditional and that she did have to make a lot of accommodations to my dad, who was the more ambitious one and whose career was in many ways um, more demanding accommodations ranging from, you know, her specialty, she became a psychiatrist, because the hours were more regular. Uh, our life kind of centered to some degree around my dad's career. And he was gone for long stretches of time in a way that I don't think it would have been tolerated if she had made the same decision. So, you know, she was operating within a set of constraints, but she still did, did pass on that message. And I feel like that's an important message for women to hear. Well, she was obviously a good mother. Yes. And I guess the question is, you know, how far can you push that as how far can you, if you feel like you have a bigger purpose in the world that you, you want to have children and you're committed to that, but you also feel like there's this other talent that you have, there's something else that you can do and you feel committed to that. And, and you, you want to really pursue that in a very zealous zealot like way. Um, should you be permitted to do that? And if you are, are you, are you then sort of basically in a position where people can really, with some degree of confidence, call you a, a bad mother. And I, I, I really wrestle with that. 
I don't know. Well, and this is a question for you. Let me give let me give the guys a guy's uh, take on this kind of thing. I'm I'm in my 70s. I have five children, six grandchildren. I was asked recently by somebody, what does it mean to be a good father? Mm. And I said, pay attention, be present, know your children. Don't let those moments go by. They'll never come again. Be present. Slow down. Sit still. Don't be too busy to know your children. Listen. Now, I didn't do that. Um, when I was 18 years old, I became a father. I dropped out of college. I went to work full time. I went back to a community college at night. I ended up a scholarship kid, a full time student at Northwestern University and a full time employee at a printing plant and a father and husband. And I was too busy to get to know my children who are in their 50s now. And the, the two who were born to me when I first came up out of, uh, you know, uh, my teenage years. Um, I've had other children since. Uh, I didn't get to know them. I was always gone. I was always busy. I was a full-time student. I worked an eight-hour shift every day, and I got overtime whenever I it took overtime whenever I could get it. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 I missed out. I, I really did, and I, I didn't. I mean, I was, I was really driven. I was just too busy to know my kids, and I think that's, you know was expected of me. I, w I wasn't expected to do anything but what I did, something like that. I don't know. Well, can I but, ask you a follow-up question on that? Because- Yeah, because this is not the Glenn Lowry confessional hour. I want everybody to know that. We're going to change the subject soon. <laughs> but I, I want to stay on this for a moment because when you and John McWhorter are talking and you refer often just as an aside to the ongoing project of your autobiography, I'm really fascinated by that. And I'm also fascinated by part of the conversation that you had on a recent podcast with, with Cornell West, which if your listeners haven't listened to it, they, they should, cause it's, it's riveting. Thank you. Lord. But you talk about in the process of writing your, your own story, that it's been a struggle for you. And, and maybe I'm not putting this correctly and I'm misinterpreting what you said, but what I hear you saying when you talk to, when you talk to John McWhorter, when you, we were talking to Cornell West, is that you have a cover story that you have. That's, that's, you have a cover story about various things, about your intellectual conversions or ideations, how they've changed over time. You have a cover story about the, the things that you tell yourself about decisions you've made as a, as a father, as a romantic partner, as an academic. And then there's sort of what's going on underneath. And I'm really curious about that because like, is what you just said to me a, a, a cover story or is it is it really sort of reaching beneath the surface? And I ask that because... I think a big part of what I, I don't know when you're describing what you see as your failings as a father is what your kids think and the impact on them of the person that you are in the world and the choices that you made. And I'm wondering if you are if you are confronting that in your writing and and pushing through into those kind of harder, deeper questions. Oh, my Lord. This asked of me by someone whom I know to be a writer because I admire her writing. Uh, and it's so incisive. I think you're 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 really touching on the on the deepest things. I start this book <laughs> with a meta reflection on the act of being honest with oneself about 
you know, I call it the problem of self-regard. Okay. Now I've got two issues. One is know thyself. And the other is to write the thing. Okay. Because I want to, I want people to believe me. So there's this issue of establishing credibility, which I think is really very interesting because it means that you have to be, you have to disclose discrediting information about yourself in order for the reader to be drawn into credulity with you about what it is that you're saying about yourself, because you have every reason to be self-aggrandizing, to be, you know, the, to put a cover on it, a cover story for you, not only for myself, but, you know, I mean, I can make my story anything I want to make it and I can be the hero of my story and I can come out, you know, on top and you can come and, you know, and if I'm the reader and I'm listening to this, why shouldn't I be cynical about it? Why shouldn't I be very skeptical about it? Why, why shouldn't I be all the kind? I said this actually in a conference about Frederick Douglass, who wrote several autobiographies. And everybody's like worshipfully reading the thing and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. This is a performance. He knows we're going to read the thing. You know, this is a guy that's a, born a slave, okay? Of course, he has a certain claim on our credulity when he tells us about what was going on in his fight for freedom. But if we're really going to be serious readers, we, we have to take that to a certain extent with a grain of salt. We can't just take that at face value. We have to interrogate that. So there's that problem. That, that's a serious problem. This is my meta reflection. This is not the book. This is thinking about the writing of the book. But there's also the self-knowledge, self uh, self-honesty, uh, because there's self-delusion. And, 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 and uh, that's the, where I'm talking about the cover story. For, I mean, I'll give some examples. You asked me about my children. I don't know if I want to talk to you about my children. When I didn't make it as a full professor at the age of 33 at Harvard University in the economics department, the first black that had been appointed there, I was supposed to go on and write a bunch of papers and be a Harvard economist professor and be a black Harvard economist professor and be the first one to be the black Paul Samuelson or something like that. And it didn't work out. I ended up at the Kennedy School of Government and I became a public intellectual amongst other things. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I think I did okay. But it didn't work out as a high-flown theoretical economist up there with the Paul Samuelsons of the world, the first black to you know, do that kind of thing. It didn't work out. Now, what really happened? Uh, was it that the economics department wasn't especially welcoming for black people? Hell no, it wasn't, man. You had to have been there. It was as staid and stick up the butt as it could possibly be. Uh, everybody was sitting there looking like this with their toe tapping, waiting to see if I was going to do anything worth acknowledging. The offices hid behind secretaries who were located behind 10 foot high oak doors on a pristine hallway and you, you had no sense that there was any life in there. So that's a damn good cover story. Affirmative action. I'm an affirmative action. Oh, what was me? I'm affirmative action. They, they don't think I'm qualified. I'm black. Surely there were incidents where like John Kenneth Galbraith shook my hand without ever actually turning his head to look me in the face. That happened, which I could 
nursed into a general sense of injury by the fact that I'm black. But what really happened is that I choked. I didn't know if I was good enough and I was afraid of failing. I didn't really allow myself the opportunity to fail. I bailed. So cover story and the real story. Uh, I'm running around on my wife. My wife gets pregnant. She loses the baby. It was, uh, you know, fibroids. Cover story, you know how it goes. Oh my God, we were, you know, there's a terrible thing, you know, grief, consolation. Real story. Secretly, relief. It's kind of thing that you would put in one of your characters' mouths to say. There's a lot of stuff like that. I mean, I persuaded myself that I was a born-again Christian and that the hand of God had come down and had touched my life. That I had been empowered with the Spirit of God to witness and to, uh, you know, pray in tongues. There's a lot of stuff that's like that. I persuaded myself that the neocons that I had been consorting with really didn't care anything about black people. When in fact, I was just so lonely and so hungry for the re-embrace of the black community that I turned my back on my neocon friends claiming that they were racially indifferent. When in fact, it's complicated. Sure, some of them were relatively racially indifferent and, and some of them, we're trying to muddle through what's a real, some really hard stuff. Liberals mugged by reality who didn't know what to do about crime and homelessness and poverty and whatnot. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I mean, on the kids, uh, it, 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 you know, we got, we got three groups of kids here, Laura. We got the kids that Charlene and I had when I was 18 and 19 years old, that's Lisa and Tammy, and then Alden who was born out of wedlock when I was 20 years old, whom I didn't acknowledge until he was a teenager. Uh, And then we've got Glenn and Nehemiah, uh, whose late mother, Linda, uh, and I married in 1983 and who were in their early 30s now and who were with me and Linda through, uh, you know, Linda and I stuck together through all of the stuff that happened with me in the 1980s, which, you know, I don't have time to talk about here. But basically the marriage was strained to a breaking point, but it held, we became Christians and we had these two sons, Glenn and Nehemiah, and they were raised in suburban Boston when I was a completely recovered and rehabilitated uh, you know, economics professor at Boston University and whatnot, and and was present, perhaps not as much as I should have been, but I did get to know my children a lot better the second time around. I was much more consciously aware of what my responsibilities as a father 
required of me and my, my life partner, my wife, Linda, who des- passed away from breast cancer 10 years ago, um, would, have, would have accepted nothing less from me. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think you would probably have to ask them about that. I don't really feel qualified to report what they think of their father. I, I, I think they respect their father's accomplishments and his, his, uh, you know, his gifts and whatnot. But I think it's really very, very complicated. We had a, we had a family reunion a few years ago that blew up into angry argument and shouting and bitterness uh, and a lot of stuff that is unresolved. So, um, I told you that I didn't need much prompting to talk about myself, but somehow the governing mechanism that I had assumed would be in place did not hold. <laughs> I have a I have a few responses to what you said, which is just complicated and vulnerable and, and very beautiful. One is that if your book is anything like the way you just answered my question, it's going to be a very great book. And I'm really looking forward to reading it. And I say that because it seems like you have made a decision that I think is very courageous, which is to make yourself vulnerable to the rest of the world in a way that your career and your achievements have not ever called on you to do and that you do not have to do at this point in your life. And I think it's really amazing that you decided to do it. And I also understand why this book is such a struggle for you to write in a way that maybe books that are much more academic and sort of uh, intellectually very complicated were perhaps a bit easier. I also think this is my personal belief about, about explorations like these. And as you call it self-honesty, which is, I believe that, and I've always believed this, that there is great strength to be found in being vulnerable in that way. And a lot of self-knowledge to be gained and also people that you're going to reach who you never thought that you could and a whole new audience that you're going to find that I think is going to be meaningful, not just for them, but for you in your own life. And then the final piece of it that I want to talk about, and of course, I, I don't, I don't know your children. I have spent the past year interviewing the children of ambitious mothers for, for my, for my book. And uh, basically I would interview the mothers and I would ask for permission to interview the kids if they were, if they were teenagers and adults. And, you know, a lot of these mothers gave permission very reluctantly. And they said what you said, which is, I don't know what they're going to say. And they said what you said, which is a lot of times I wasn't very present and I, I wasn't at the soccer game at the, at the PTA meeting. And I, missed birthdays and I missed holidays. And there were times when I was caught up in my own thing. 
And what was really interesting talking to these kids who are now basically adults is just the, not just the resilience of the kids in the face of all of the things that I've described, which of course were in fact true, but also the love that they had and the admiration they had and the respect that they had for the choices that in this case, their mother's had made, but I'm guessing if I wrote a book about fathers, I would be getting the same response. And there was one interview I'll never forget. It's this, the son of a woman who is now a justice on the court of appeal in, in, I think it's in Wisconsin. And she had been a trial lawyer. She had litigated all over the country. She had these three boys and she was gone. I don't think she ever went to a single one of any of their, their sports games. And she was sort of notorious in their family for just I think being at a nine out of 10, it was one kid told me on a, on a stress level. And so I was interviewing one of these sons and, you know, he talked about her, her investiture when she was appointed by the governor to be on this court of appeal and how one person after another got up and talked about the work that she had done, including, I think a few of her, her clients. And he started to tell the story about how she had brought this case on behalf of a breast cancer survivor suing a large company for, for malpractice. And that after this very long period and trial, she had lost and that he had found her in the garage with the client crying in the car. And he told me the story and he started crying on the phone. He said, I can't believe I'm crying. I never cry, but that's who my mother was and is. And Wow. And she's the reason why I made a bunch of the decisions that I made. And yes, she wasn't there all the time, but like if my life were hanging in the balance, I had a problem I couldn't solve. I needed someone who I could completely trust. She's the person that I would call. And I feel like that may well be true for, for you too. And I think a lot of times people who achieve a great deal in the professional sphere at some cost to their family really worry that they've done irrevocable damage. And I, don't think that that's as true as often as we think. I sure hope you're right about that. Anyway, I think we've reached a natural stopping point for this conversation, Laura, but gosh, if you let me, I'd love to revisit our exchange at a decent interval and talk about that Title IX stuff or whatever else might be on your mind. I really enjoyed it. I loved talking to you. Um, I was so excited to have this conversation. You're brilliant. And thank you for having me on. I would come back anytime. Okay. Well, that was good to hear. Thank you. So we'll sign off for now.